Well, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. It's really great to have you all here. My name is Duncan Lockhart. I study engineering here at Sydney University, and I'm also the president of the Evangelical Union, or EU, a group of around 650 students here on campus seeking to find out more about the God of this world as revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And if you weren't aware, this event is part of a two-week festival that we've organized, the Read Jesus Festival, through which we're inviting our campus to join us in considering the life of Jesus, a life that, no matter what you think of it, has certainly had, without a doubt, a, a significant impact on the world as we know it today. And as we do that, we're delighted today to be joined by Dr. John Dixon to help us reconsider that life through the lens of history. John holds a PhD in ancient history from Macquarie University, where he's now an honorary associate, but his career turns haven't just included academic endeavors. In the past, he spent seven years touring and recording as a singer-songwriter, two years hosting his own music television program on the, on the 10 network, and uh, he's also written a dozen best-selling books. More recently, you may recognize him from a documentary of his that screened uh, The Christ Files on, on Channel 7. Before John comes up to address us, I wanted to draw your attention to the feedback forms that you would have received in your outlines as you came in today. We'd love everyone here to take a moment now to fill those out, to let us know you were here, or you can also use that to leave some comments for the EU or for John, our speaker. But one of the most interesting things about the Christian faith is that it really does make historical claims. And so to help us reconsider the person of Jesus, the person at the centre of that faith, I'd like you to join me now in welcoming up Dr. John Dixon. Thank you, Duncan. Um, when I hear that kind of introduction, used to be a singer, you know, now PhD, I, I just, I sort of feel like the the MC's trying to tell the audience he hasn't always been a nerd. <laughs> there was once a day. Uh, look, it's a great uh, topic. I'm very pleased to be invited to talk to you about it. Um, it's a topic that is very dear to my heart, both academically and uh, personally. One of the favorite things in my life is running a short course on the life of Jesus for skeptics and inquirers. Uh, it's a very brief course, just uh, five, say, Wednesday evenings um, in a lounge room, drinking wine, eating cheese, and discussing the Gospels. Uh, now, I've been running this for about 15 years, and uh, I still run one. In fact, I was in session four last night in the lounge room, drinking the wine, eating the cheese, talking about Jesus. Uh, but usually the first of the five sessions is an incredibly quiet affair because the people in the room, they're just sort of spectators to the whole Jesus thing. And they're trying to work out whether the person in the couch opposite you know, knows more than they do about the subject. So everyone's really sheepish. They don't ask too many questions. Well, that was for the first 10 years of running the course. About five years ago, everything changed. And I can remember the night, actually. It was week one of this course on Jesus' life. 
And I just explained to this lounge room of uni students, young professionals, mums and dads, that Christianity revolves around the person of Jesus. Those words had just left my lips when they started to ask question after question. Uh, Who wrote about Jesus? Did non-Christians write about Jesus? Why didn't Jesus write himself? Who chose what got into the New Testament and what didn't? How do we know it hasn't been changed over the years? And on and on, hardly allowing me, you know, like a few sentences of reply before they shot off another question. Um, I was stunned because I'd been running the course for quite a while and never had I had so many history-style questions in one session, let alone the first session. And what's interesting is since then, for the last five years, the story's basically repeated. This last group that I'm leading in the lounge room, drinking wine, eating cheese, first night, bang, 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 lots of questions about the history stuff. When that first happened, I wondered to myself whether I was experiencing a Da Vinci Code factor. Uh, I almost feel embarrassed putting the Da Vinci Code up now because we've all learned to be embarrassed that we ever took it so seriously. But at the time, I thought, well, maybe, you know, everyone's read the Da Vinci Code and they're feeling uh, incredibly curious about and yet skeptical towards the Jesus story. Because, of course, the claims in the Da Vinci Code uh, would, if they were true, have incredible implications for Christianity. But actually, I suspect the Da Vinci Code itself was really just part of a rising interest in and skepticism toward Christianity in our culture. And since the Da Vinci Code, there have been a ton of equally skeptical documentaries and books and so on. You may recognize a few of these. You you may know that the National Geographic Channel uh, spent millions of dollars on this uh, documentary about the Gospel of Judas, uh, which they claimed was a, a document Uh, which purports to be written by Judas, the traditional betrayer of Jesus. And uh, what is written in this gospel is that all the other 11 apostles got it wrong and Judas was the one who got it right. Uh, And throughout the documentary, the beautiful American deep voiceover used the word authentic. And you just get a good voice saying that word, and it's compelling. This was an authentic gospel of Judas. What they didn't really let people in on is that they weren't really meaning to say it was authentically written by Judas, because no scholar in the world thinks that. All they meant was that this particular manuscript they'd found was an authentic copy of a second or third century forgery in Judas's name about Jesus. But, you know, it sold many, many copies. Uh, You may also know about the uh, lost tomb of Jesus. See, not to be outdone, the Discovery Channel needed their own documentary uh, based on the proposition that they discovered this tomb. Actually, they discovered it in the 80s, but they got the documentary just recently. They discovered this Jewish tomb in Talpiot, just outside Jerusalem. And inside uh, the tomb uh, was a burial box, an ossuary. Uh, that was inscribed on the side, Jesus, son of Joseph. Aha. So the, the basis of the documentary was that they discovered the tomb of Jesus and that uh, inside the tomb there was some sort of remains still and they could do a little bit of DNA testing on this. So Jesus was actually buried and he didn't get up again and this was sort of the, the premise of the documentary. Well, they didn't let on 
is that Jesus and Joseph were incredibly popular names in first century Palestine. And there would have been literally hundreds of Jesus, son of Joseph's. And it was the wrong kind of tomb. And there were about 20 people in the tomb anyway. Uh, it's an industry. You may also recognize uh, Don Shelby Spong, who's uh, an Anglican bishop in uh, America and, uh, and a theologian. And he's written a, a book that came out just last year, Jesus for the Non-Religious, which is basically arguing that the whole Jesus story, as you thought you knew it, was never intended to be history. It was a metaphor about the spiritual connection we all can have with the Christ spirit. That's the kind of punchline of the book. Now, uh, even more strident on the Jesus question are the new atheists. Uh, Richard Dawkins, professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. Uh, Michel Onfray, professor of philosophy in France. And Christopher Hitchens, who's a, um, a professor of liberal studies and a well-known journalist and provocateur. Uh, Dawkins, in his book, on uh, page 97, gives the impression that scholars still aren't decided whether Jesus even existed. So he writes, it is even possible to mount a serious, though he acknowledges not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all. Having made that statement early in the book, he then repeatedly throughout the book uh, suggests that the question of Jesus very existence is still in dispute. So uh, he can say things like on page 250, if Jesus existed or whoever wrote his script, if he didn't. Christopher Hitchens uh, likewise says things like the highly questionable existence of Jesus. And Michel Onfray, professor of philosophy in France, goes even further and categorically says Jesus' existence has not been established historically. No contemporary documentation of the event. No archaeological proof. Nothing certain exists today. We must leave it to lovers of impossible debates to decide on the question of Jesus' existence. Now, these statements will come as a profound surprise to anyone who has dipped a toe into historical Jesus studies. And when I say that, let me just make clear, I'm not talking about theology. I'm not talking about the sort of thing you learn at more college. I'm talking about in secular universities around the world, the study of Jesus is still a live topic. This statement will be utterly surprising to anyone who's studied this. Um, I'll be frank and say, I know of no ancient historian or biblical historian in any university in the world who thinks that Jesus' existence is still in dispute. And yet the new atheists give the impression, more than give the impression, that it is. And just to check it wasn't my own bias, um, I emailed recently Professor Graham Clark, who's uh, one of the leading classicists in the country, not a Christian, uh, but he's an expert in Christian origins. In fact, he wrote the chapter on Christianity in volume 10 of the Cambridge University Ancient History. I emailed him to say, do you know of any ancient historian or biblical historian anywhere in the world who thinks Jesus' existence is disputable. He emailed straight back, and I'll quote. Frankly, I know of no ancient historian or biblical historian who would have a twinge of doubt about the existence of a Jesus Christ. 
The documentary evidence is simply overwhelming. That's an email dated March 13 this year. He then, at the end, said, and you can quote me. <laughs> the overwhelming documentary evidence that Professor Clark is referring to at least includes three very important non-Christian references to Jesus. Uh, Tacitus is the greatest of Rome's historians. I hope there are a few ancient historians here in the, the room today. Tacitus is uh, the great name. Uh, basically, most of what you know about the emperors, uh, Tiberius, Caligula, and so on, comes from Tacitus. He's our best source. Anyway, he refers to Jesus on one clear occasion and confirms his execution under Pontius Pilate. Another important non-Christian text, which I got the opportunity to play with, it's, uh, we only have one copy, it's in the British Library um, in London, and uh, Marabas Serapion is writing a letter home to his son, he's in prison, uh, and in passing he refers to this wise Jewish king whom the Jewish people had executed in recent memory. Uh, Two other famous texts come from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian in Book 18 and Book 20. He refers to Jesus in uh, the Book 18 text. He refers to Jesus as a teacher, as a performer of paradoxa erga, uh, baffling deeds, um, and as a martyr whose disciples continued to uh, rally to his cause after his death. Uh, in the Book 20 reference, uh, Josephus refers to the execution of a certain James, whom he then describes as the brother of Jesus, the so-called Messiah. It is accepted, to put it very simply, by all players in the historical study of Jesus that he lived. And for the new atheists to say otherwise is, I think, intellectually... I mean, on this question of Jesus' existence, Dawkins could have just walked down the road to Pembroke College and spoken to one of the leading New Testament historians in the world, Christopher Tuckett at Oxford University. Uh, he looks like Mr. Bean, I know. Um, <laughs> in, in fact, I was able to interview him recently, and um, I was quite disturbed that just Behind him, though not in this shot, I don't think, just out of shot is a, a sketch one of his students had drawn of him as Mr. Bean. In any case, Christopher Tuckett, in his Cambridge University textbook on the historical Jesus, writes these words. He's referring to the references in Josephus, Marabas, Serapion, and Tacitus. All of this does at least render highly implausible any far-fetched theories that even Jesus' very existence was a Christian invention. The fact that Jesus existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate for whatever reason, and that he had a band of followers who continued to support his cause seems to be part of the bedrock of historical tradition. If nothing else, the non-Christian evidence can provide us with certainty on that score. All of which highlights something of the strategy of the new atheists. And... I feel a little bit coy about naming this, but 
since the new atheists claim such a high intellectual ground, I feel compelled to name it. The new atheists regularly, at least in historical areas, I can't tell whether they do this in science, philosophy, sociology, and all the other stuff, but at least in historical matters, they employ the writings of marginal uh, writers and present them to the public as real scholarship, which is the great academic no-no. And people who are real professors like these men ought to know better. And actually, Richard Dawkins proves my point because he's one example of a serious historical case that Jesus never lived is, and I quote from page 97, Professor G.A. Wells of the University of London. Which sounds all very good, until you realize that Professor George Wells is Professor of German Language at London University. Let's just pause. Richard Dawkins reaches for a Professor of German Language who wrote a popular book denying Jesus' existence to make the point that a serious historical case can be made that Jesus never lived at all. Can you imagine the response from the new atheists if I wrote a serious scientific case can be made that evolution by natural selection has never occurred and then quoted a language professor as my sole authority? Something weird is going on in the new atheists, at least in this area. As I say, I can't tell whether they do the same in sociology, anthropology, science, and so on. But I tell you, it, it catches on. Um, just the other night, I had the great privilege of being at a dinner party with Professor Vic Stenger, who's one of uh, the world's leading atheists at the moment. Uh, he's written the book, God, the Failed Hypothesis. And uh, he was involved in a debate the other night. And I, I was invited to tag along. And anyway, we ended up in a discussion, he and I, over the existence of Jesus. And um, he said to me, scholars now agree that the Gospels are fundamentally fiction and that Jesus may not have even existed. And I said to him, can you name me a single scholar who thinks this? And he said, George Wells. I said, Professor Stenger, I can respect you as a physicist. I'm way out of my depth with you. But do you know that George Wells teaches German at London University? See, what dawned on me, it dawned on me when I read The New Atheist, but it dawned on me especially the other night. Dogmatic skepticism can be every bit as blind as dogmatic faith and lead you down the garden path intellectually. I hope that I'm not offending anyone. I probably am. But it's essential for me to point out that secular scholars, and I underline that, secular scholars, don't leave the study of Jesus with these non-Christian references to him and the simple fact of his existence. If you start digging beneath the surface, if, if you go into the great Fisher Library, go to the historical Jesus section, which is pretty good over there, open any book, you'll soon discover they don't leave it with the question of his existence. Mainstream historians agree that we know quite a bit about Jesus. 
And the reason for this is not because of the passing references to him in non-Christian literature. It's actually because of the very detailed references to him in the first century Christian literature. Now, I know as soon as I say that, to people who aren't uh, broadly read in the field, that's a red rag to a bull. How can, you, how can you quote Christian literature as evidence for Jesus? They're Christians. Of course they believe in Jesus. I was talking to a very intelligent woman who asked me for the sources of our knowledge of Jesus. And I started to list the Greek sources, the Roman histor uh, sources, and the Jewish sources, and she was quite happy to hear about those. And then I started to list the Christian sources, now compiled in the New Testament. And she stopped me and said, John, you can't use those. I said, why not? She said, they were written by believers. She had somehow got it into her head that religious devotion disqualified these texts from being regarded as historical sources also which is not how historians approach the matter at all. And as I tried to explain to this woman, um, historians do take the Christian bias into account when they read the New Testament. Of course they do. That's what historians do with anything. Uh, we have to take the imperial bias into account when we read Tacitus. We take the Jewish bias into account when we read Josephus and so on. Taking into account someone's bias is just instinctive for the historian. But it is just not true to say that historians place the Christian literature in a category all of its own called religious text, therefore not historical text. Not at all. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that historians universally regard the New Testament texts as the earliest, most plentiful, and most reliable sources of information about Jesus. And there are several reasons for this. It's important to understand that historians approaching the New Testament don't privilege the New Testament the way a Christian might. Okay, I know that when you guys meet as AFES, you, you normally privilege the New Testament as the Word of God. Now, historians don't do that for a second. But nor do they have a kind of dogmatic bias against it. They just look at it like it's Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius or Epictetus or anything like that. They just approach it neutrally. And when they approach it, they at least note two very important things about the New Testament itself. Number one, the New Testament is not a single source for our historical knowledge of Jesus at all. It's a multiple source. It's a book of sources. And this is sometimes a little hard for Christians especially to get their heads around uh, because we're used to opening up one book called the Bible. But historians don't do that. They don't think like that. Uh, we know that the Gospel of Mark was written independently of the letters of Paul. And we know that Paul didn't have a copy of the Gospel of Mark when he wrote his letters. So there are two sources. It doesn't matter that in the second and third centuries, these documents were pulled together into one piece of binding called the New Testament. Originally, they were written independently of each other. Uh, in, in fact, um, there are even sources within the Gospels. Uh, I don't want to turn this into a history lecture, but um, within, the, within the Gospel of Luke alone, at least three sources are detected. Uh, Luke de definitely uses Mark's Gospel as a source, but he also uses a source called Q. In fact, Christopher Tuckett, whom I quoted before, Mr. Bean, uh, he is uh, the world authority on Q. Uh, and another source, 
Imagine saying I'm a world expert on Q. It's from the German word Quella, meaning source. Scholars aren't very imaginative when they come to naming things. Um, But another source, L. These are all sources within the gospel that Luke has pulled together. Uh, Actually, historians do this with Tacitus and Josephus and Suetonius as well. Uh, We we know they're using prior sources, so we can sort of break out and recognize their sources. I'm giving you more information than you want to know. But the punchline is this. Within the New Testament, we can detect at least five independent sources, probably seven independent sources, and others argue more. But I'll just say it like that. And the point of knowing this is that the first step in all historical inquiry, and I know every ancient historian here will back me up, is to work out how many independent sources say something about the topic or person in question. See, the more independent sources, sources that haven't just copied each other, you have, the more plausible a portrait of a person you're able to paint from the past. And this is known as, I know this is terrible, the criterion of multiple attestation. which basically affirms that when numerous ancient sources independently offer roughly the same portrait of a person or event from the past, that portrait takes on greater plausibility. Now, you can forget the criterion of multiple attestation as a, as a badge, but we use it all the time. It's common sense. Uh, if you hear some surprising news from one friend, you may or may not believe it. Depends how much you trust the friend. If you hear the same surprising new- news from two friends and you know they haven't got together to wind you up, you're more likely to believe it. If you hear the same surprising news from three or four or five or six or seven or more friends and you know they haven't got together to wind you up, you're far more likely to believe it. We use the criterion of multiple attestation all the time. We just, you know, don't invent terms like that. And my point here is to simply say that historians approach the New Testament and are convinced that the criterion of multiple attestation is amply fulfilled in the case of Jesus. Independently of each other, numerous writers, at least five, probably seven, maybe more, independently of each other, paint Jesus as a famous teacher, healer, who was called the Messiah, who died under Pontius Pilate and was seen again alive after death. That's the first reason secular historians take the New Testament seriously. There's another criterion that's well worth remembering. It is also one of the basic steps in ancient history. It's the criterion of date. How early are your sources? How soon after the events purported does the source, uh, was the source written? Now, um, people often say, you know, the Gospels or Paul's letters were written so long after Jesus, how could you ever trust it? Actually, for an ancient historian, it doesn't look that long after Jesus at all. And I'll, I'll give you... Um, Three comparisons. Our earliest biography of Muhammad, uh, the great founder of Islam, was written 125 years, according to all Muslim scholars, 125 years after Muhammad, and was edited for another 50 to 75 years after that. Um, But it's still an incredibly important source for the secular historian for the life of Muhammad. the first written records of Siddhartha Gautama, whom we call the Buddha, were written 350 years after the, uh, the Buddha's de- death. Uh, this is Buddhist scholarship, uh, by the way. And the, our best source for Emperor Tiberius, who reigned when Jesus lived, was written about 114. 
77 years after the death of Tiberius. Now, just hold this in mind. Our earliest New Testament source can be dated to the year 50. Our latest New Testament source can be dated mid-90s. That's the general consensus. Which means the latest source in the New Testament is closer in time to Jesus than the best source of our knowledge of Emperor Tiberius. It's worth just soaking that up. This is why secular historians aren't dismissive, like Richard Dawkins is, like Michel Onfray is. They don't dismiss the New Testament. They don't um, privilege it, but nor are they prejudiced against it. What's more on this criterion of date? We have 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. This perhaps requires an entire lecture, but I'll, I'll just give you the rapid-fire version. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, in the mid-50s, quotes a creed which scholars, whether they're Jewish scholars, atheist scholars, or Christian scholars, agree was in common usage by at least the mid-30s. Let me read it to you. Here, Paul says, For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance, and then the, the creed comes, and it's very clear in Greek that it's a creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Scholars agree this was passed on to the Apostle Paul either in the year 31-32, when he was in Damascus, or the year 33-34 when he was in Jerusalem. You can take your pick, doesn't really matter much. But what we can say, and here I quote Professor James Dunn of Durham University, who is no Christian apologist, I'll just underline that, he says, this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. And I had the enormous privilege of handling... <laughs> of handling the oldest manuscript copy in the Chester Beattie Library in, um, in Dublin. And can you see the curator behind my shoulder? I've chopped him off a little bit. He was looking very pompously at me. Um, my own fault, because in, in my enthusiasm, and, and, and that's my attempt to have a scholarly face, I was just so beaming to hold this thing. Anyway, I turned around to him and I said, how much would this be worth? <laughs> He said, we don't discuss such things. <laughs> All scholarly credibility was gone. <laughs> anyway, uh, that wasn't in my notes, so you don't have to worry about that. But the point is, um, this little creedal summary of events was in common Christian usage in the mid-30s. This establishes beyond reasonable doubt that the core of the Jesus story, that he was called the Christ, that he died, that it was interpreted as a death for sins, that he was buried in a tomb, 
that he was resurrected, that he appeared to people, that he had established 12 apostles, was already common knowledge by the mid-30s. It rules out completely any silly idea that this stuff was part of a developing legend about Jesus. It is just infuriating to read Dawkins when he says, the only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is that one is modern fiction and the other is ancient fiction. When no one in the know says that. We know that all of this stuff up on the screen was being preached, committed to memory by Christians, decades before it was in detail written up in the Gospels. Let me try and land this plane. Ay, ay, ay. Mainstream historical scholarship today, and I'm underlining, I'm not talking about theology, which I know the new atheists say is a non-discipline, so I don't refer to theologians. I'm referring to mainstream historical scholarship agrees that we know a stack about Yeshua of Nazareth. And I want to quote to you one of the leading uh, Jesus historians in the world, who is a self-confessed agnostic. I'm deliberately quoting him because he comes from the skeptical end of things. I don't want to be accused of quoting Christian apologists. E.P. Sanders, professor at Duke University, author of the wonderful little book, Historical Figure of Jesus, and a ton of other ones. Here is his summary of what the historian can know about Jesus. And I I read it because I just want you to compare it with what the new atheists are currently saying. There are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing he did during his public activity. I shall first offer a list of statements about Jesus that meet two standards. They are almost beyond dispute, and they belong to the framework of his life and especially of his public career. Jesus was born circa 4 BCE, before the Common Era. Near the time of the death of Herod the Great, he spent his childhood and early adult years in Nazareth, a Galilean village. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He called disciples. He taught in the towns, villages, and countryside of Galilee, apparently not the cities. He preached the kingdom of God. About the year 30, he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He created a disturbance in the temple area. He had a final meal with his disciples. He was arrested and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest. He was executed on orders of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. We may add here a short list of equally secure facts about the aftermath of Jesus' life. His disciples fled. They saw him, in what sense is not certain, after his death. I love that. Elsewhere he says, that Jesus' disciples saw Jesus um, after his death is a fact of history. What explains that? I have no idea. As a consequence, they believed that, we, that he would return to found the kingdom. They formed a community to await his return and sought to win others to faith in him as God's Messiah. Friends, that is the consensus of historical scholarship about Jesus, and it's nuts to think otherwise. And it's intellectually bankrupt to put in print that it is otherwise. I can't prove to you the whole Jesus story. I can't prove the details. That's not what I'm about. But I can say we know historically that the core of the Jesus story happened. Now, whether you embrace the Jesus story and become a Christian, 
involves more than evidence. I acknowledge that. There is a gap, in other words, between what history can demonstrate and what Christianity affirms. The gap is nowhere near as big as most people reckon, but there's a gap. I admit that. But some of the best decisions you will make in life involve a bit of a gap between the evidence and the commitment. Most of you will probably decide to get married. But I want to say, when you're in the experience of a courtship, you won't have the evidence that demonstrates you could be with this person for better, for worse, richer or poorer, whether you get an official marriage or you know, just a, a celebrant or whatever, that's not the issue. You won't have clear cut evidence, but you will have strong indications that this is the right person. See, we know, we understand that the experience of a courtship can provide indications for the decision, but not prove it and demand it. I reckon it's very similar with the Christian faith. There are many indications that the Jesus story is true. But it, that doesn't push you over the line. Just as when you decide to get married, there will be other mysterious connections involved in making that decision. There are in deciding to be a Christian. It isn't just all about evidence. Other factors come into play, like your previous experience of Christians. That plays a part. Like your own preferences. Whether you want it to be true that Jesus is the Lord. All of these play at least as much a part as the evidence does in the commitment involved in Christianity. A commitment I don't have time to talk about today, but I think I'm back on Monday. In my diary anyway. Uh, <laughs> and I'll talk about the death of Jesus. And uh, it'll start to get juicy then. Anyway, I know I've gone over time. I'm embarrassed. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to sit down now. <laughs> Thank you, John. If today's talk has resonated with you in any way, please consider taking some small steps towards finding out some more information about Jesus. One thing you could do is tick the appropriate box on the response forms as you drop them in today. Or perhaps also lock in next Monday. Yes, John will be back next Monday at 1 p.m. And also next Tuesday as well, back here in the chemistry building. So consider coming along to that as well. Make sure you grab one of those green postcards that you've seen around for more details. And also make sure you keep checking out some of the many great things happening as part of this Read Jesus Festival over this week and next week. One thing that I'm particularly excited about, a, a short film festival happening tonight at 5pm in the Footbridge Theatre. That's 5pm in the Footbridge, including $2 burgers. How good is that? Uh, we, we're going to be serving afternoon tea now outside in the courtyard, so please join us there. But thanks for coming. Remember to drop those feedback forms in the buckets on your way out, and have a really great day.
Barney. Oh, yeah, good nice. to see you. Yeah, good, good. So I'm up next Thursday. Right. Yeah, so. What are you doing? Um,